you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out later this year. I'm Liz Manishal, I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, currently on Showtime. I'm in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome writer-director Jane Shunburn on the show to talk about their first feature film, We Are All Going to the World's Fair, how it was to get into Sundance, getting signed, and what it was like to have a bidding war over their fir- their next feature script, which is now being produced by A24. So war went well for Jane. We also talk about what to do when your brain is fried, which apparently means to mispronounce words. And then I ask Liz a question. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm okay. I woke up at 4 a.m. and was really excited to spend the next two hours finishing up Bridgerton season two. So I feel <laughs> like my brain is fried, but it's like a I like I chose I chose to watch two hours of that show. Other than that, Amy and I are writing pages on our horror feature and we've got about 10 pages in and we're going to go back and look at those 10 pages. We meet twice a week. So we're going to go back and look at those pages and have new pages due Friday. And basically, I'm learning that I used to think I was really confident about dialogue and I've lost all that confidence and I'm relearning how to write dialogue. So that's what I'm going through right now. What are you going through? Well, first off, dialogue is the worst. (laughs) Second off, how many pages are you, do you have like for Friday? Like, is it like two pages a week, three pages a week, 10 pages a week? Like, what are you? No page requirement. So we Ah. divided the whole, whole film up into sequences. And I did sequence one and Amy did sequence two. And I thought sequence one was going to be like 15 pages long. But when I sat down and wrote it, it was five. So mm. I think I will probably land somewhere around eight to 10 and probably for Amy and it'll be seven or eight sequences that are somewhere between eight to 15 pages long. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. I'm doing okay. I, I just got back from the Phoenix Film Festival on Sunday. And I mean, I don't know, dude, this week was nuts. Like, I got a crazy email, a phone call on Thursday that was crazy. It was like, oh, Ulrich, do you want to production manage this really cool indie feature film by a company that we all know and, you know, featuring people that we've all heard of, especially a movie that we definitely have heard of because it's, you know, whatever, topical. But I had to turn it down because I have a full-time job and they wanted me to start this week. And there's like, I can't do that. I can't abandon my team that I'm already assigned to on my job through May. And, you know, like if I had gotten a month warning, if it was like, oh, this movie's starting in June, I could have called my bosses. I could have worked it out. You know, they probably wouldn't have been happy, but they would have like let me go for a month to go, you know, production manage this movie. But it's just, it just didn't work out that way. So it's like, I basically, I couldn't do it. And then instead I ended up helping them find a production manager and a production coordinator and a bunch of other crew members. So like I was basically all week, like from, like from basically Thursday through I think Sunday until they found their people. I was like on my phone, like calling people, asking if they'd want to do this thing, whatever, whatever. And I'm, I'm going to get a cool credit on the movie. I'm sure, you know, maybe they'll pay me something. I don't know, but I don't really care. It's like, if I get the credit, that'll be cool. Wait, how you did know? they find you? I've worked with them before. Oh. And, it, and it's some, it's, a, it's somebody that who like I've talked to and, ke- and kept, you know, in touch with over the years, but I kind of felt like, you know, I, I'd never gotten hired to work on another project with them since I'd worked with them on this one thing, this small thing years ago. And so I was like, ah, well, that's here it is. I'm never going to work on one of their movies. That'll never happen. And then like, you know, then you get the phone call, like, you know, whatever, eight years later, <laughs> like, oh, fuck, they want me to work on this thing. I did a good job even maybe. Holy shit. Crazy. So it's just funny. Like you go, you, you think back to like an experience in your life where you're like, oh, I, that was really cool. I got to work with these awesome people. But it's like, ah, oh, did I even good, do a good job? And then like, you know, you don't think you did because like nothing came of it directly. But then it's like 10, eight, 10 years later in your life. It's like, oh, I did do a good job. So it's like this really crazy validation from years past, you know, and then it's like, oh, I get to be a part of this thing, you know, in a small way, even though I, I can't be, you know, a big part of it, but I can be at least be a small part of it. And so it's been pretty fun. And it's actually been kind of more work than I thought. But you know, it's, it's always it's just fun to be a part of making a movie, you know, it's just like cool to 
be in the system or not the system. It's not a system at all. <laughs> it's indie, but yeah, it's just to be part of the, you know, the community, like trying to, trying to figure yeah. out like who can do this, you know, the mechanism, so. but like the, the gig you did for them eight years ago, was it production management? No, this, this is a huge, this is like a promotion from what I did last so time. So they must have talked to someone else and they recommended you and brought you back on. No, the I don't know. I think they just like, I thought I could do the job, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what it was. Do, I, mean, I don't know what the job was that you did eight years ago but if it was like a pa to production manager that's like a massive leap right no it was it was a one step above pa but you know it was but it was it was like it was a pretty big jump you know that's why i was surprised because i figured like oh i'd be lucky to get called to to do the same role again let alone a bigger role you know and i'm not allowed to talk about what it is and i'm worried i already gave up too much information for people to know what i honestly have no idea unless it's coppola because i know you worked for coppola at one point i have no idea (laughs) so Okay. I think well, you're then safe. good. All right, good. Because I'm not allowed to say, or I'll get, <laughs> I'll get. And then I will never work with them again if 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 uh, this becomes public knowledge from my podcast. I will be skewered. Yeah. Then the other thing that happened was the next day I got another phone call asking if I could present some ideas to these investors who have two million dollars of money that they need to spend on a movie. Oh, oh, and that's it's like, like a dream scenario. They have. It's like what burning <laughs> pocket? They have. Well, that's crazy. And it's like from a friend. It's like it's basically like a, somebody I worked with like also years ago, a different person, and you know. They're not doing what they were doing when I worked with them before. They're doing something else. And like, just because they're in film and then they work with these financial people, they're like, oh, hey, you're a film guy. Like, can you bring us some ideas? <laughs> and so he was like, hey, whatever you got, send me what you got. And so I put together like 10 to 12 different ideas with either all my own or like ones that had come with, you know, with collaborators and, you know, put them all together and set them off on Monday morning because he didn't, he didn't even want to read scripts. He was like, it's cool to know there is a script, but I don't even want to send them scripts. I'm just sending them concepts, like just log lines and synopsises. So I was like, okay, here you go. Boom. You know, and I sent him everything I got. I sent him the trailer to the movie and like, you know, a bunch of other things. I even wrote an, an alternate sequel concept. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So I had all these things. And, and so it's like, that's going on with the, with the indie movie. And then that thing is, this thing is going on all while I'm like on the plane to Phoenix, you know, like I, I found out about this, like driving to the airport and I'm just like driving to the airport, like, holy shit. So I'm like in the airport, like writing, okay, what ideas am I going to put together? Like what log lines am I going to do? Okay. And then I'm talk, talking to people on the phone and then, yeah. And then I get there to, to the film festival. My plane's delayed. So I, I miss everything on Friday, nothing Friday. And then Saturday I watch movies starting at like nine 30 and like all day. And it was really fun. And yeah. Phoenix Film Festival. It's you know, amazing. Why all these things happen is because Phoenix Film Festival is magical and yeah. it just creates <laughs> opportunity. And I do it genuinely believe that I love, I like owe a lot to Phoenix Film Festival. So I'm glad that my theory has been proved correct. Yeah. No, it was, it was amazing. I had a woman after the screening come, come up to me and be like, Oh, I loved your movie so much. It was so great. And last year when Coda was here, like I told Troy, I told him, Oscar for you. You're going to have an Oscar. And he teed in the so. I'm not trying to say anything, but like, you know, I'm pretty, I got a good sense of these things. I was like, okay, you're very sweet. Thank you. Yeah. You know, the screening was three fourths filled without like me doing anything but like a couple of Facebook posts. So like word of mouth had definitely, or I don't know, some people, I don't know why, like synopsises. I think just people attend movies at this film festival. I think yeah, that's maybe what that's, is, what's going that's just on. what it is. Yeah. But it was cool because it was like more filled than some other screenings, you know, for other movies. So I kind of felt like that's pretty fun that people are like choosing to see my movie. Yeah. And then I met a, a, a listener after the screening. David Kuntz came to the screening and, you know, said what's up after and said he's a big fan of the show and he's been listening for a couple of years. He's never written in. He's never given us. David, a, you know, so, come on, so, right in. So it was really cool to like meet somebody like who I didn't know at all. Yeah, it was just really awesome that he came out and supported the show, or the movie, and that like he he digs the show, and yeah, it was it was really awesome. And then I met more people who heard of the show at at the party, and then I found out it's all connected to one individual named Nathan Blackwell, who is a Phoenix native, and I think he's a teacher. Not sure where he teaches, but he teaches at some school there, and yeah, he's the one blasting our podcast out to everybody. I'm not sure if that's how David Coons heard about it, but like I. Met this guy Josh, he knew about the podcast from Nathan, and a couple other people they knew about the podcast from Nathan. 
I met some of Nathan's students. They knew about the podcast because apparently Nathan plays our podcast in his fucking class. I don't mean, I don't know. Nathan, basically, you need to like have some kind of award or something. Like we need to like make some making movies is hard, like something to like yeah. give to Nathan Blackwell for like, you know, being such a champion of our show. Pretty amazing. Thank you, Nathan. You're squishy studios. And yes, we appreciate you so much. Yet another reason why we should all move to Phoenix. And they also have pretty, a delicious Mexican restaurant called Taco Guild. And we should all go oh. and eat at Taco Guild. I oh, did you not get didn't to go, go to Taco there. Guild. That's right. I <laughs> recommended it to you and I never checked in. Damn it. I didn't go there because I went to one place for breakfast that was like really close to the theater. And then I went to the places that were around the theater. And there was there was a Cien, Cien Agaves. That was like the Mexican restaurant right next Been to the there? theater. Yep. And they gave us, you know, a bunch of free margarita t- coupons. So oh, yeah. I was only there for one day. I only got to use one of my free margarita t- coupons. But uh, it was pretty good, gotta say. So over, overall, everybody submit to Phoenix. Phoenix is the best. I met the, the you know, head of the festival, Jason. He was amazing. Got to like hang out with, with a lot of those people. So it was just a really cool, cool experience. They had a fun party, the film prom. I don't know if you've ever been to film prom. No. That's something that they did when you went. But yeah, they it was- They had a uh, Duran Duran cover band when I was there ah, and no one wanted to cool. dance and it was incredibly uncomfortable. And had I, were I there now, I'd be <laughs> dancing. I'm just saying like we oh. were lame. We were the lame ones. The cover band was awesome. There was quite a few people. I was not dancing. I, I don't feel like I like to dance without my wife. It just like seems like weird to, do. I don't know. But you know, <laughs> anyways, there were a lot of people dancing. The DJ did did his job well, you know. But anyways, the other thing that, you know, you can do well is you can go to the Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Support the show. We've got lots of fun videos on there. Our, our weekly meetings that Eric, Liz, and I have are on the Patreon. So you get to hear all the behind the scenes, gerbly gook, blibble blabble, whatever you want to call it that we do every week to like figure out like how to make the show better and like, you know, what, how the show's doing. So you can check those out. Liz and I also have our own little private videos that we've posted that are just like little little things that we're dealing with as filmmakers. So yeah, you go on there, check those things out. We also have to wish a very happy birthday to Francesca and Damien Harris. Francesca is not a Harris. They're just two separate people. But happy birthday to them both for, for uh, upping their support of the show. They increased their Patreon support. So you guys are amazing. Thank you so much for doing that. Also, a very happy birthday to Carl Richter for becoming a brand new Patreon patron. Thank you so much, Carl. We really appreciate it. This is amazing. So, you know, I don't know. I feel like a lot of growth in the Patreon this last week. So people, you know, this is how the show will continue to grow. So thank you so much. Happy birthday to you all. And yeah, hopefully we see more lovely faces that we can give happy birthdays to in the upcoming weeks and months. The thing you also need to do is check out Jambox.io, a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese. They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. So you can use your our code MMIH to get a discount, a 20% discount on your subscription today. But without any more delay, here is our chat with Jane Shunbrun. Could you give us the elevator pitch to we're all going to the World's Fair? Ooh, the elevator pitch. You know, it really depends on who I'm giving it to. I have my elevator pitch that I give people who seem like normal, nice human beings. And and that is, um, it's a movie about a girl getting in trouble on the internet. Nice. Maybe if I'm looking at another trans person or a queer person or somebody who's clearly um, not, not a daylight kind of person, I go a little deeper into it being a queer emo horror film about not understanding yourself and trying to find yourself in really dark spaces. Nice. How many days did you shoot? Principles of Photography, I think, was 13 days. So a pretty quick shoot. We did a lot of like what I called artifact gathering beforehand. It's a film about the internet and it's a film about somebody watching videos on the internet. And so a lot of the videos that we watch in the film were made outside of principal photography in really strange ways. For instance, one was literally just my laptop recording a man running on a treadmill and slapping himself. One was literally a self-portrait that I drove to Dallas-Fort Worth to film, a 12-second scene with a YouTuber who I was a big fan of in her apartment on her camera that she shoots her videos on. There were other weird stories like that, but it was sort of this strange process of gathering everything so that principal photography could sort of integrate it all. What can you speak of with regard to the budget? 
I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy to share. It was tiny. I'm really proud of how amazing the film looks and how expansive the film feels based on what we made it for, which all in physical production was 100K. And we probably spent upwards of another 100 getting it finished and out into the world. And then how did you come up with the idea? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the film is about the creepypasta community on the internet. If you don't know what that is, it's a form of storytelling, horror storytelling that's pretty native to the internet. It's basically kids telling each other campfire stories, but pretending to be the main character in those stories. So you don't tell a story and say, there was a ghost. You tell a story and say, I just saw a ghost and here's what it looked like. It's a really interesting, I think, like outsider artist community, because what happens is somebody says, I just saw a ghost. Here's what it looks like. And then the next person will maybe post a photo of that same. In this way, it's collaborative. In this way, it's democratized. This community most famously birthed the Slender Man. But I, when I heard about this community around 2014 or so, I was a little too old to actually be a part of it. But it reminded me so vividly of my childhood on an earlier version of the internet. I was born in 1987 and my internet at the, you know, in those tender years of like early teenage, I need a space outside of this town that I'm stuck in was like dial up. But, you know, it was a lot of like X-Files and Buffy and horror movie fan forums and AOL chat rooms and and a lot of creativity that I didn't feel comfortable doing in my uh, daily life, you know, it was sort of my little secret with myself that I had this space on the computer in the basement where I could write scary stories for other people. The inspiration for the film, I think, was knowing that there was something inside that, the need for that space that I needed in adolescence. And there was something inside of this sort of identity play that I saw in a lot of these creepypasta forums that I was looking into that I really wanted to investigate and specifically investigate like why, as a young person, I was so drawn to fiction and so drawn to to dark applications of fiction. So the film, it's not autobiographical, but it's sort of loosely inspired by like my relationship with the internet and what fascinates me about the internet. The question is, how long did you spend working on the film from inception to the release? But I'm also hearing there's a lot of contextual information that you're sharing. So you can choose to answer that in any way you'd like. I think I started thinking about making the film in 2014. I wrote a script that is probably a quote-unquote first draft around 2018, although I had written other things in this universe that didn't feel exactly right to me before then. We shot the film right before the pandemic in February 2020. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January 2021, virtually. It's finally coming out in theaters April 2022, and it'll be on HBO Max later this year. So I don't know how many years that is, a bunch, a decade, I don't know. Yeah, my, my math says eight years. Eight That's years. a nice, nice bit of time. Compared, compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was it to make this one? Certainly the most challenging. It's my first feature film as a director I've produced. I've sort of been at the center of various projects. A lot of my work that I was doing before making this feature was more curatorial than traditional sort of, I am the director behind the camera telling people what to do or collaborating with people. You never want to just tell people what to do. I think I really needed to make peace with what making a film was, which is like many years of your life for 80 minutes that feel hopefully representative of something personal. And that was the hardest thing was like making that emotional commitment and then seeing it through over that many years. I want to talk a little bit about that experience in curation and artist support from Kickstarter to IFP to iSlicer to Radical Film Fair, all those things. Can you dig in a little bit more about, was it a, a lack of, I mean, use the word commitment. So I'm just trying to figure out, sorry, I do this a lot, Jane. I, I like find my question as I talk, which is so unfun for some people. But I think there's a lot of artists who have a fear or a lack of confidence or maybe whatever it is, a lack fear of commitment. I don't know what it is. It's different for all of us in terms of just coming out and saying, I want to direct. Was it was that part of it or was it something completely different? For sure, that was part of it. And I would even go so far as to say that the film is about that fear. Perhaps I would use the word shame in this case. Like I said, I was this young kid writing stories on the computer and not telling anybody in my life about them. And I'm pretty sure that's because I had gotten enough signals already that those weren't the kinds of stories that anyone wanted to be hearing, you know, when you grow up as a young queer kid 
you know, and specifically in the 1990s and a pretty heteronormative suburban environment. There's the thing that people tell you, right, of like, you can be anything you want to be and do anything you want to do and be true to yourself. But then there are limits of that when people maybe like get a, get a whiff, they say, uh, maybe not that true to yourself. And so I think I learned pretty young a lot of a lot of shame around authentic expression, both of my own identity and of myself, my artistic identity, which is obviously a facet of who I am. And then I got into adulthood. And I, you know, like as a result of that, I think for many years sort of felt disempowered and deeply afraid of sort of expressing myself in in a way that felt honest. And so it was a lot easier to, I don't know that I would say live vicariously, but support others in that process. Like I knew what I loved and what I loved was creativity. And my the way my brain always worked and continued to work was an artist's brain. But it was much easier for me to find other artists who I, I adored, who were making work that excited me who I could support rather than making myself me, you know, at the time detransitioned me front and center the story. And so when I set out to make my first film, which I, I, I settled on doing before my egg had cracked, right before I realized I was, I was trans and started actively transitioning. I think one of the key, I think I knew enough about what I needed to make art about to know that it needed to be personal. And that like that idea, that question of, of not feeling comfortable with myself and with my own artistic expression, that needed to be what the film was about. And it did play out that that long creative process of making the film. The thing that I was trying to find, which was my voice, was so tied up with all of these other larger identity issues, transition stuff that I needed to sort of figure out. And I think one hand held and continues to hold the other, like my artistic pursuit an artistic transition, you know, is is so tied up with my 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 gender transition. Do you feel like now that you've made the movie that 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 expression is easier for you now? That it's easier to get your ideas and your stories out now that you've like kind of gone through this whole process over this long period of time? Yeah, and I think the external validation of the film resonating with other people was incredibly meaningful. With that, I think Sundance was the turning point, and it was almost like poetic that it all happened on the internet. You know, I did have this ability to be safe in my home out, you know, the Sundance, Sundance was the first time that I was sort of like out publicly as a trans person, you know, like both both in appearance and in the way I was talking about myself, you know, that, that I had never done that before. And I was like only months into my physical transition at the time. And, you know, it, it reminded me of when I was like 20 years old and did stand up comedy for the first time. And then after that, never had a fear of public speaking again, because once you've done that, like everything else is a little less scary. And now, yeah, now it's like I'm addicted to it. Now I just, I love talking about, because it's what I'm meant to do. It's like, I'm a creative person. I just needed to find the courage to make work that was honest. And to do that, I needed to find the courage to be honest with myself. I want to hear a little bit about casting your lead, just because, I'm, you know, you look her up on IMDb, there's not a ton of credits, at least in the feature film world. And I, I have some feeling that you have some fabulous way in which you found her. So I'm, I'm just trusting that gut instinct here. I don't know about fabulous. I think maybe exhaustive <laughs> would be a more accurate word. You know, I'd been around the independent film space for a long time. I think I knew enough about the realities of making films at the budget level that we were making this film that my best bet was to make a major discovery. You know, I thought a lot at the time about, remember, I was working at Filmmaker Magazine in 2010 or 11, I was just like an intern. And it was literally my job to like mail the magazine out to people who didn't get it in the mail for whatever reason. And I got an email one day. It was an issue that um, had Jennifer Lawrence on the cover right after she had started Winter's Bone for the first time. And I got an email from her family. And they were like, our, you know, our daughter's on a magazine cover for the first time. It's so exciting for us. Will you send us some copies in the mail? And I was like, sure. And I always thought about Jennifer Lawrence and Winter's Bone as like, you know, and obviously I think I was looking for someone who is completely different. But when you don't have the budget to like nail down, you know, the most sort of sought after star in Hollywood, I think your your best move and maybe even a better move than that in general is to make a discovery. But to make a discovery, you need to dig, dig deep. And that digging deep, like I said, was quite exhaustive. I worked with a wonderful casting director who was an old friend who does a lot of street casting named Abby Harry. But I sort of bit off the Casey role myself. I, I, I like literally said, we're not making this film until we find somebody that we can hang the movie on because the movie just hangs completely on this young person's shoulders. And 
we did a months long exhaustive search, basically everything you could imagine we, we did. I spent days on a wiki page listing every prominent YouTuber being like, maybe there's somebody who's just uploading videos to YouTube who would be perfect for this. Turns out a lot of them don't make the kind of videos that I would feel comfortable inviting into my creative process. <laughs> But we were posting, you know, like listings everywhere. We were getting tapes in. We were talking to acting schools. We were talking to agents. I had just bought Abby a plane ticket to New York to go like to different comic shops to try to street cast. And then a headshot came in for Anna and she looked, she, it just caught my attention. You know, she, she looked, it was a different kind of headshot than I'd seen for most people. I think she took it like a selfie in the bathroom mirror and her eyes were big and it just like looked so much more like something that Casey would would take of themselves versus what, what most people were sending in as headshots. And then we got a tape from Anna and it was incredible. Both her, like we, we had her answer some questions about herself and she had so much personality. She's overflowing with personality and charisma. And then we had her read a scene and it was that incredibly rare combination, diamond in the rough, one in a million combination of like, this person is so specific and individual and has so much personality, but they're also, their craft is incredible. And then we met Anna and yeah, then it was just like, that's our Casey. You know, once when I try, when I write a role, I try to write, try to write the character 70% there on the page and leave 30% open for somebody to um, imbue with themselves, you know, um, and especially on a film like this, where we were very intentionally keeping a lot of the structures loose so that we could do improv and we could find the character in an even deeper way on set. Inviting Anna into that process was incredible and one of the best collaborations I'll ever have in my life. We would work at the New York Public Library because we couldn't afford actual rehearsal space. So we would rent a room for free. You're allowed to do that at the New York Public Library and run lines, but also just do improv exercises. She was making fake YouTube videos in character for months in the lead up to production. And you're just talking about who this character was. Like Anna is somebody who doesn't have much interest in horror movies or computers. So there was stuff for her to learn. But she also wanted to learn about what was underneath this very slippery and very complex character. And when she found it, then it was just like, now we can play in the sandbox and get really deep into who this person is and, and, and layers that I didn't even know were there when I was writing it. So the question I've been thinking about is like, what was, so you, you obviously had a lot of time prepping with your lead, but what was your process in prepping the film? Like, were there, did you get to have that kind of time with all your actors or was it just with that one? And like, how did you approach getting ready to shoot the movie? I'd say that the process with Anna was the most intensive one. We cast Michael, who's the other lead in the film, but, but like in the film, I think on camera a lot less than, than, than Anna, Ugh, like two weeks before production, it was down to the wire on that one. And so there was just less time as a reality with, with Michael, although Michael was much more of a seasoned character actor who brought a lot of experience to the role in, in a way where perhaps that, that finding of the character together was less essential. Although it would have been great to do. The other actors in the film, yeah, you know, like with everyone, there was sort of like as much as they had an appetite for finding some kind of common emotional ground and shared language ahead of time. And then you just do that with all of your collaborators. I'm a big believer that film is all about preparing obsessively, having the, the, most, the most refined plan and then being able and ready to throw it out at a moment's notice when you get on set and see what reality is giving you. I think it's also very much about getting to know and building a language with your collaborators, especially those who can do something that you can't do, which is most of them. But especially on this film, I think that like my holy trinity of creative collaborators was Dan Carbone, my, my DP, Anna Cobb, the actor, Alex, who ended up doing the score for the movie, I think like added an element that was um, so, so crucial that I just needed to build this like very developed language with him to find the exact right sort of sound and tone for the film. And that's not to say that there weren't deep collaborations across the board, like what Grace, our production designer, brought to the set and, and built for us is so essential to the world of the film. And, you know, I, I could go on and list uh, 30 names of people who like gave their soul and heart to the movie in various ways. But I think it's sort of about knowing like what you as the director can't do, finding people who can do it and can bring it guiding them and then giving them a lot of space to to also put themselves into it in a way that you're not controlling. So you make your first feature, you get pulled into the system to a degree, right? I mean, for good and for bad, right? The resources, the support, the access to bigger projects, but also 
being a personal filmmaker, being someone with this like such a specific, bold, unique vision. I'm just curious if you, how you are planning to work within the system while protecting, protecting that, or if you, or if it's not even a consideration, then please share that. Oh, it's, it's such a consideration. And I think I tend to be a realist about it. And I think that that this topic is really under discussed. I think that there's sort of this myth of the auteur that generally benefits like white dudes, you know, like white dudes get to just sort of hang out with Martin Scorsese and pretend like they're geniuses and they never have to worry about infrastructural commercial concerns. But that's because it's easier for them to sort of be labeled as as quote unquote geniuses or visionaries or whatever it might be. And that sucks. But I think everyone is a little bit careerist slash I think you have to be a little bit careerist if you want to have any kind of sustainable art making practice in this medium, which is expensive. And yeah, I I thought a ton about it. You know, I'd also had the benefit of working around the independent film space. And when I was like 22, I was working with filmmakers like David Lowery and Shaka King on their first tiny little projects. And, you know, they were they were friends. And then I watched them go through this. And I watched so many filmmakers develop their relationship between the sort of like art commerce thing. I don't think there's one answer to it. In fact, I think everyone's answer to it is their own. You know, I really look up to filmer, filmmakers like Hong Sang Soo or Eric Romer, Steven Soderbergh, you know, like filmmakers who've like figured out ways to almost like work completely outside the systems or create sustainable practices in their own little corner and make a lot of work. Obviously, usually that work uh, tends to be like not the biggest budget work, but I think that that is a method. Then I really look up to filmmakers like David or, or Richard Linklater who make a lot of different types of work in a lot of different genres and budget sizes and seem conscious of the idea that when you're making a movie for Disney or when you're making a movie at a certain budget level, you as the artist are making a different kind of movie with a different sort of set of structures and limitations as, as your like sort of weirdo $2 million movie that you're making with friends off the grid. I don't know that I've exactly figured out my relationship to all of this yet, except to say that like it's probably the leading thing I think about right now, for better or for worse. I'm shooting my second film this summer with A24. The budget is, you know, like... 40 times the budget of my first film, still a smaller, small budget in terms of like what movies should quote unquote cost with real talent in them and, and filled with all kinds of limitations. It's not like the, the, the toy box is, is, is like infinite at that level. It's actually still quite tight, but it is just a completely different, I think of it as a different medium and it's an opportunity as much as it's a potential minefield. And I think it's a minefield because, you know, more more money on the line, more cooks in the kitchen means that um, you need to really protect yourself and your, your creative vision a lot more. I think I'm really proud of making a film, you know, like the way I did and, and with no resources first, because I think it showed what I can do outside of uh, people getting in there and tinkering. And I think that's sort of enabled me to take more creative space on, on the subsequent project. And I think I, I just generally like expect that I'll continue being strategic about that whole art commerce thing as I move from project to project. You know, I don't want to rule anything out. I also know that if I just end up anonymously directing three act kind of traditional narrative blockbuster tentpole movies, I'll be pretty depressed. Maybe I'll be rich, but like, I won't be happy. And so I think I'll do what I need to do to continue being able to be creatively invigorated. Can you talk about how the this new movie came about? Like, was it something that you wrote and then pitched? Or was it just like a concept that you pitched and then you got hired to write? Or like, how did this whole thing happen? And I know you can't talk much about the story details, but just like, I'd love to hear about the details of the deal and how it came to be. For sure. Yeah. So it's called I Saw the TV Glow. It's, it's, it's very similar and very different from We're All Going to the World's Fair. Bigger, obviously. Like, there are, there are monsters in the movie. We're making some proper monsters. You know, which is which is part of that whole toy box thing that is really fun. It's a lot poppier, a lot bigger, but I, I think it's about very similar things. It's a movie about these two kids who are obsessed with the scary TV show growing up. It gets dark and strange as they get older. I had written it before Sundance. So my film premiered at Sundance in January 2021. I finished a draft that I was proud of. of I saw the TV glow somewhere around like October, November. And again, it had been something that had, like World's Fair, been stuck inside me for a long time. And I had tried to figure out the best way to get it out onto the page. And it came out at the time that it was ready to come out. But I was so happy that I had it out by the time Sundance happened, because that was the moment to strike, right? Like, that's when the cards you're holding are, are, are the best possible cards in terms of 
riding that wave towards the next thing. And I was very conscious of this. People had told me this, that like you get into Sundance, your film premieres at Sundance, you're basically like the one that everyone wants to meet for six months and before you're, before you're old news. And so I was like, I got six months, I got to hustle. I had no representation, you know, like I, I had a lot of connections and people kind of knew who I was through my work in the New York film scene, but people didn't necessarily think about me in the context of like, that's going to be a really significant auteur artist who's going to have a long career as a filmmaker in America. I think the film did most of that work, but I certainly like pounded the pavement and reached out to friends and got, you know, like when you, when your film premieres at Sundance, the first thing that happens is you get a million emails from people wanting to meet you. And we had a sales agent who was great on the film at CAA. And then I took probably like a dozen meetings with managers and settled on, on a management company that felt really right. And what felt right to me about this company was that first of all, they were just like nurturing rad women. And secondly, they really wanted to have a conversation about like where I wanted to go as a filmmaker rather than tell me like what opportunity existed for me to grab in this moment post Sundance. And I just knew that I didn't want to just go and start directing television or, you know, get paid a bunch of money to write something anonymously that would, you know, like sort of like not lead me to a sustainable career as, as an artist and, a, and an auteur. They seemed most excited about going on that journey with me. And I had the script. And so from there, they helped me think really strategically about what to do with this script. I knew that A24 was sort of the dream. I knew they weren't the only game in town, but I knew that they were, you know, like the sort of Harvard or Yale of, of making a movie like I wanted to make in America. And so they were, it was always the dream to work with them. But we kind of felt like before we worked with them, we needed people who were a little more experienced. I, I you know, I, I, I'm working with one of my producers from World's Fair on, on the new one as well, because it felt important to me to, to bring some folks along. But we also knew that we needed some bigger guns. In, in the court to sort of like legitimize the idea that we could be trusted with X millions of dollars on, you know, on, on, a, on a bigger movie when we had never done that before and took a bunch of meetings. You know, it was really nice that there were people who, who resonated with World's Fair and loved the new script and ultimately um, met and started working with Emma Stone and her husband, Dave McCary, who's a filmmaker. And they had just started this company, Fruit Tree, trying to make exactly the kind of movie that I wanted to make. And they were so nurturing. I think the most important thing for me is always like thinking about the structure that I'm surrounding myself with and, and like thinking really deeply about who the people that I'm inviting in to collaborate with are trusting them so that like once I make that decision of like, this is my collaborator, I can just trust them, you know, and then the process of finding the right match is like really exhaustively thinking about like how that relationship will work. And Dave and Em were just like the loveliest human beings who like were clearly huge fans of the films who were clearly like genuinely in this because they want to be advocates for artists, you know, and, and also advocates for me as a trans filmmaker, like protecting my voice and my vision in an industry where there aren't many people like me. And it just felt like such a great fit. And it really played out wonderfully. You know, we pitched the movie last summer. I think we pitched to seven places and had seven offers and a bidding war to make it. Wow. And yeah, it, it's, it's so cool. You know, it's so cool to get some resources to make something that's still really personal and really transgressive. It's exciting. Jane, basically, you're on the top of the world right now. Like, every, basically, what you described in this conversation is every filmmaker's dream. But the question to you is, does it, do you feel that? Or does it just feel like you're just grinding? You're just one more step up from where you were, you know, when you started? I feel really grateful. I think, I think the resounding feeling is it's pretty surreal. And I think that surreality is compounded by like being in the right body and identity for the first time. It's pretty strange, to be honest, and it's, it is very new. I think I need like 10 years to catch up with it if I'll ever catch up with it. I also feel like there's a lot higher to go. I just know that like the type of stuff that I'm working on now doesn't feel like the limit of what I could make creatively. And that means bigger budgets and bigger hurdles and bigger power structures to operate within. So it definitely doesn't feel like I've reached the top of any mountain, but it does feel um, very enriching and fulfilling. And I think above all, the idea that I get to make personal work with other like-minded souls who I'm learning to understand and grow with, you know, like it, it's, it's the best and, and I don't take it for granted at all. I try, I try to sort of like celebrate it as much as I can. Okay, I think it's time for our final six questions. Arik, confirming, looking for a nod? Sure, and then I'll sneak one in if we have time at the end. I love it. All right, so what's the first film you made? It could be this one, or it could be a short, a 
high school project, whatever it is, however you want to answer. And how do you feel about it now? I made a, an archival documentary called The Self-Induced Hallucination that's made entirely out of YouTube footage about the Slender Man. I made this as a trial run for World's Fair or as almost like a, a working document as I was thinking about what fascinated me about the themes that I was exploring. I'm proud of it still. I, th I think it's a more political film, political in a different way than World's Fair. I think it has a lot to say about the internet and structures and creativity and commodification and capitalism and spirituality and transness. I think my big takeaway from making that film, which I made a year or two before my like trans egg crack moment, is that it is very much a film about needing to figure out your trans. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? What comes to mind first, I don't know that it's the best advice I've received. My assistant director, Willie, gave me some great advice in the lead up to making World's Fair. He said, you know, I never ran a set before as a director and, and, and I was really trying to think of it as, as, as being a manager. I think that's like a thing that directors don't think enough about is that like when you step onto that set, everyone is looking to you for something and you're in charge of the tone and atmosphere. And I just don't thrive on tension or conflict. I thrive on that feeling of like, we're all in this and we get to be creative together isn't this amazing. And so it was really important to me to set that tone on set. You know, I was talking to Willie about this and, and, and he told me that in his experience, like it's okay to tell people no and to tell people what you need and to stick really firmly to what your vision is. People get frustrated when you don't explain why. If you can't articulate to them why this thing that you're telling them that maybe doesn't seem logical is important, like explaining why it is important. And that became like a, one of my sort of tools in my toolbox on the set was anytime I could sort of tell that someone was getting frustrated about something that I was asking for or pushing for, I would take five minutes to explain why it mattered, you know, why this makeup effect or location or extra shot that we needed to grab was core to what I was doing in the movie. And if it wasn't core, I was much more open to revising the plan. Do you have a scenario where you received really bad advice and you want to share that? Yeah. When we sent the movie out to sales agents, we found amazing sales agents at CAA, but there was one company who shall go unnamed to, they were like, you gotta make more commercial movies, buddy. Like you gotta meet people in the middle. No one's gonna wanna buy this film. They, they told me that it needed more blood, that it needed more kills, that it was original, but that originality is bad for business. And maybe from their perspective where they're sitting, that's true, but like, good luck, y'all have a good life. I'm, I'm doing my thing over here and it's going pretty well. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I think of filmmaking, or at least what I try to do through my films as like adjacent to care work, like adjacent to education or commiseration or something. I was like, art was really important to me and still is really important to me, but especially like as a kid and as a teenager, when I didn't really understand myself and I didn't really have a lot of outlets for myself, like art was very comforting to me and very important to me and especially sad songs and sad movies and dark movies and weird things that no one else could understand why I found comfort in them that were a balm. And so I think like ultimately my goal is just to like give that back, you know, to make work that feels like work that would have been there for young me in the sort of hope that there are other folks out there who, who will connect with it in that way. If you could go back in time, what would you tell your younger self? You're trans. But no, never mind. No, take it back. I don't think my younger self needs to know that. I, yeah, I think that actually could have led younger Jane down a, down a dark path. Because if you're not surrounded by a support system that's ready to hear that, knowing it too early could actually be quite dangerous. And I think that the early 2000s, late 90s in suburbia at 15 under my parents' roof was exactly that dangerous place. <laughs> what would I say to my younger self? I think I would say like that. I, I, I think that like not doubting your weirdness is maybe a better way to put it that you're going to go to film school and a bunch of people are going to tell you that there's a correct way to make a movie and the way you're making a movie is incorrect. And that idea of being incorrect is going to get beaten into you until you start to believe it. That's going to waste some years of your life for sure. Final question, is making movies hard? You know, I always ruffle my eyes or whatever at, at, at yes or no questions because it feels like a binary to me, you know, and I'm non-binary, baby. 
<laughs> I would say that uh, making movies is both extremely hard and extremely easy and extremely natural and extremely um, healing. One of my mantras for this movie is a Bjork lyric where she says, it's not meant to be a struggle uphill. And anytime it started feeling like a struggle uphill, uh, that, that was sort of like a, a warning sign that I needed to, to figure out how to walk around that struggle and go focus on something else. Nice. Well, thank you for being on, on our show. Sell your wares. How do you want people to support you in this one specific concrete call to action in this moment? Check out the movie. We're all done. <laughs> if you like it, follow me on Twitter and I'll tell you what else is going on. Hey. Awesome. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Jane? I remember it being lovely. I remember feeling like really comfortable to ask whatever I wanted, which is my favorite type of interview where you just, you ask questions that are atypical. Maybe you're phrasing them or trying to figure them out while you're talking. What's funny is like I met Jane a long time ago at Rotterdam Film Festival. And then, you know, it's like when you talk to a friend who like becomes famous and you're just like, oh, there's like a definite power imbalance here. And it's not, <laughs> it's not like a negative thing because she deserves all the success and she's really amazing. And we weren't like close friends. But it was this interesting thing where it's like we used to be peers and now we're not. And you're still peers. You're still peers. Are we? Well, either way, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed by her. And I was like yeah. more than willing to set aside my ego to just talk with her. So that was really cool too. Yeah, it's just she's had a lot of success, that's all, you know, which is which is fantastic. The thing I remember <laughs> was pretty much that. That like the success. Yeah, the, 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 like having the conversation with Jane, you're like, okay, yeah, that's amazing that happened. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, wow. And then you like start to unpeel more like of the onion and you're like, wait, your dreams came true. Like you've <laughs> had everything that ever, you know, filmmakers ever wish to happen has happened for you and you're living it right now. And so I got to ask that question at the end, which I was really happy yeah. about. And, and I loved her answer. It was great. But yeah, it is pretty, pretty incredible to hear. And like, you know, having a bidding war over her next script is like incredible. The other thing that I, I mean, that I, I thought was really interesting was this whole thing about like, you know, when she discovered who she was as a person and like her whole trans experience and how that was so like deeply connected to her writing experience and her creativity. And that like, when you, when you asked about like where the idea came from, like what she would talk about is like how as she was discovering who she was and like really owning that and like, you know, becoming that person that she always has been, you know, but like letting it actually, you know, bloom, I guess is maybe is a way of saying it. That's when like the creative juices also bloomed. And then this movie came out and then, you know, she wrote this movie, directed this movie, finished this movie. And then I was like, then it went immediately went to Sundance. So it's kind of amazing. <laughs> like, it's like, not only was this like this discovery of becoming the writer and the filmmaker that you, that you, you could be and like achieving that potential, but also be, at the same time, like finding yourself, you know? Mm. And so I kind of thought it was a really beautiful story and, and very unique, like something that, you know, we haven't really heard before on the show. So it was, it was I very cool. That. You know, didn't she call it something like, like her egg cracking moment or something? Yeah, I love the that. egg cracked. That was what she, yeah, it was calling like oh. the, yeah, when the egg cracked, when the, like the trans egg cracked or something. It was She's, cool. <laughs> it was a cool way of yeah, framing it. Very cool. But yeah, what, what I want to talk about now, Liz, is what do you like want to do as a filmmaker? Like, what is the thing that you want to achieve in the all the hours, all the time, all the energy, all the complete, like, and terrible, like, doubt and, you know, everything that we go through as filmmakers? Like, what are you trying to do? Like, what is the, the thing that you're trying to achieve in the art you make? I think there are, like, a lot of reasons that I would give were it not this scenario, right? Were it someone else asking me? And I was thinking, like, I want to show non-traditional bodies and faces on screen. I want to represent represent the neurotic people out there in the world on film. You know, like, there's a lot of things that I have in terms of missions. And I really want to make people laugh. Like, that's really rewarding. But I think that if you're, if you're trying to get to, like, a, a core reason, I think it's actually just to prove to myself that I can do it. Like, it's so hard. And every project is so hard. And every project is so scary. And I find myself in every single project being like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Oh my God, I shouldn't have done that. Oh my God, how do I block? Oh my God, 
How do I create a shot list? Like it's starting fresh every single time. And for some reason, I have it in my mind that the more I do it, the more confident I'm going to feel, the more I'm going to, I'm going to believe in myself and the more I'm going to think I can do this. And so I'm, I think the real reason why I'm making films has to do with some degree of like an attempt at mastering something that's like excruciatingly hard. And, and I just want to get to that first pillar of like, oh, I can make something acceptable. Like that's what's driving me. But you don't think that you've already done that by like making a movie and making your money back and getting into film festivals and then making another one and then getting into more film festivals. Like you don't think that is the proof that you can do it? No. I mean, I, I'm proud of myself, but I can tell you like how those decisions were made. Like I can say like, well, that was a coincidence or I took the advice of someone or like I can tell you like the way things proliferated in each project I've done. But I would love to make a film where I feel really confident about proposing solutions without going to collaborations because of fear. Like I think you should collaborate with your teammates, but very often I'll be like, what would you do? What do you, what should we do? I'm not sure. What do I, I don't know. That's part of being a good director. I hope so. But I also think is a lack of confidence. And this is not Liz doing her thing. I mean, I genuinely would like to be a confident artist. And I think that that's why I'm, I do what we're doing. You know, everyone has something that they want to be a master at, I think. Or a lot of people have something, you know, maybe they want right. to be a really good runner. Maybe they want to be a good cook. Like there's all these things. For some reason, I chose this stupid masochistic exercise of filmmaking. And so I've, I've given myself a big challenge. But I'm curious, am I, as usual, taking the assignment too seriously and, and talking more about psychology than actual practical reasons why we do what we do? I don't know. I mean, I just, I think it's interesting, like, because like, like, in your mind, like, do you feel like to achieve what you're going after, where this like this mastery that you call it, like, do you think that you walk onto a set and then it's like you immediately know what to do? And like the vision that you have in your head just like pours out of you and you're like easily be able to communicate everything that you want to you, to the whole team and you don't have to ask questions and you don't have to second guess that it's just like coming straight out of your brain into your, through your mouth and to your no. team or like what what is it that you do you see as that mastery? I think it's just a confidence. So it's like I would know the shot list backwards and forwards or I would already have the scene blocked out before I get to set. Very often, I'm, I leave blocking to the very last minute. I think it's just like doing the job requirements of being a director well in advance so that when I'm on set, I'm collaborating in a way where it's an alternate idea to the idea in my head. It's like, mm. I have an idea, but I want to hear what other ideas are coming from the crew rather than feeling like my knees were jelly and I wasn't really, I, I'm not able to stand by my own thoughts. I just want to have like a certain level of confidence. And I think mm. the experience I'm going after and the level of films and the level of experience and the trajectory, the whole thing is all to get enough data so that I can be confident on set. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Because because you're, you're talking about isn't like an outward thing. You're talking about like an inward thing. It's like just you feeling confident. It, the, yeah. the, despite like your actions and how you are, like, because like a lot of your crew might be like, oh, she Liz is a very confident and like, you know, well-spoken and like organized director, you know, but like, but to you, it's not that you're searching for necessarily like, like the actual abilities or the skills. It's more like you want to feel a certain way when you're on a set. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, first of all, like, this is how I feel in this moment. Usually I'm like, oh, I want to place at the table and I'm, I'm doing what I do because I want the recognition. But I'm turning away from that lately. And now I'm just want to feel really proud of the work. And I think that comes with putting the time and the effort in and making decisions not under duress, but because they're things that you really want to do. So I think we can all fake it and we could all say, yeah, I want the red shirt and not the blue shirt. Or yes, I want a close up and not a wide shot here. But do you know the exact reason why you're doing that each time? I don't. Sometimes it's just mm -hmm. because we have to make the day. And I think when you watch a film and you're like, wow, 
God, that camera movement was amazing. I wish I could come up with something like that. Like I want to, I want to come up with ideas that I can be proud of in that way. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if you are doing it, you just don't necessarily realize it. You know, <laughs> that would be like, like me. That would be very like me. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't believe it either way. Yeah, I, I just the thing is so interesting because I think like, like there are reasons why we do all the things that we do, and I even talked about this a little bit in my Q and A for the alternate because they were asking questions about like the reflections that we had you know in the movie and that like they noticed a motif of reflections that was totally intentional that was something that like jason and i talked about like from you know way before we we started shooting like we it was like part of our plan in our in our you know the the like the kind of the notes he took on the cinematography you know it was like we wanted to have like reflections be a theme visually throughout the movie because like you know there's whole this whole whole thing of duality of the two different worlds the two different jakes two different chris's it's like something we wanted to really feature visually throughout the movie and like you know if you were to ask me like do you know every answer to the, to the question of like why do you want to put the camera here like why do you want to be a close-up like i i don't think i could tell you like every single reason like oh it's because we're really trying to like show like how jake is inside himself and isolated from blah blah, blah. it's like you could give whatever bullshit poetic reason you want but i think like in the end it's just because it's a feeling and it's like i get an instinct that you go off as an as an artist that you're just like this is like what you feel and what you see that you like that like feels right you know and then if your cinematographer shows you something else maybe you re react to that and then like that's the thing that you think is important or maybe that you see that other thing and you're like oh no that angle is shit like that you know the what you had before was way better like that doesn't you know communicate the same feeling that i had when i looked at it this way but like what feeling and why and whatever like who the fuck cares like you're making the decision because that's what you want as as the artist you don't need to be able to like write an essay on it you know like i don't think that's like really important maybe some directors like they they can do that and they want to do that and that's important but like i think for the most part like as long as you have a sense of like what you're trying to achieve like story-wise like overall with like the characters in the scene or whatever like i don't think you need to have a like a specific answer for every little decision you make you know i i i think well first of all i don't think i always inform where i want the camera to be so you're already two steps ahead of me in that sometimes i'll be like oh i want to be wide here and then julia will be like okay well let's go from this side of the room because of this reason then i'll go sounds great that looks beautiful you know i think you are putting together a shot list where you are putting the camera where you're instinctually encouraging it to be. So it's a Sometimes, little bit different. But like it all it all gets blown up usually like in the in the rehearsal because right. the blocking rehearsal is like when the actors do their thing and like even if you blocked it with them before in a different way, it changes. They're gonna do whatever the fuck they want. They're they're <laughs> they're, they're gonna feel the character in the moment in the in the space with the lighting, with the, the props, with everything the way it is, the final set, you know, and they're gonna do what they feel hopefully if they don't then fire them because like you want an actor who's going to do what feels right to them as the character because they're the ones who are embodying it right. for you and the ones that putting it on the screen so it's like like their instincts are like so valuable and i feel like every time that I, I i didn't want to trust in their instincts in the edit i ended up going with the version where we went where it was the actor's like instinct driving like the blocking or the performance or whatever when i ever it was like two times where i was like you know ed can you I actually had it in my head more like this can you do it more like this and then he was like i don't he like we would argue <laughs> like tell me like why he disagreed but then you know he would do it his way and then we would do one for me and then of course his way was the one that ended up in the movie you know and <laughs> So it's like trusting your actors, I think, is such a good lesson. And I think like, like, I don't know. It's so funny. Like you're talking about this, like this blocking before and like, you know, whatever, like having a full like shot list. I believe in the shot list. Like, I think like you have to do the shot list process, but like you also have to be ready to like burn it when you get to set because like it completely changed, you know, or like you take your shot list and then you're like, okay, well, based off the blocking rehearsal, we just saw like this shot works, this shot works, this shot works. These three shots don't work anymore. What do we need something to replace them? Or can we tell the story with the three shots that we have left that work or like, like that, I think that process is like really special. And I think like trying to like shoehorn actors into doing exactly what you want. Like maybe it works for some crazy geniuses out there, like these crazy directors who could do that or whatever. But like, I think for most people, it's like, it's the collaboration on set where like that moment is like where it's defined, you know? Well, I, I want to be able to throw away the playbook. I just want to create the playbook first. <laughs> And it's like, it's kind of like when you start a new job or you, or I don't even when you're in school and you like, it's a difference between studying before tests and just winging it and hoping for the best. 
like when you study, you feel a lot more confident. And I feel like I haven't been studying the right things. But you create shot lists, don't you? I do shot lists. I do storyboards. I usually write the scripts, but (laughs) I have to say that like... What are you talking about? When I work with... So I'm working with Amy on on this script and we just started... we, We did this exercise today where we were like, what is the one word that defines each of these characters? And then we said, what are their, you know, what do they want to be when they grow up? And I, it's like, I never did any of these things when I wrote mm. the other two scripts. So, like, I'm just feeling like I didn't do the work I should have done in the past. And I want to do it yeah. now. Every every script's different. Every person's different. Like, I mean. I mean, we got it done. We made two movies, you know, like, somehow yeah. we survived. I think you need to own that a little bit more. And that, like, like that you have achieved what many, many, many filmmakers have not achieved. And you're at a level that you, like, you're, you're not accepting you're not accepting that you're at this level that you're at. It's like, you, you, like you're refusing to like, to own that but this, like, that that you are quality? a confident. That's a good quality, I think. <laughs> to some degree, but I think like, if, if you're talking about this confidence that you, you want to feel when you're on set, it's like, you know, like owning the success, That's like I point. think brings in some of the confidence, <laughs> That's right? A very- valid point. Like, (laughs) where am I going to find the confidence if I'm already so hard on myself? I think that's a really fair point. But I also think like, you know, I talk to Sean about things like this a lot. And he thinks that you should always strive to be better. And that's where this is coming from. And I I totally agree with that. I mean, I I feel like there's always another mountain to climb. Like you always want to do better. And I mean, I feel like there's a million things I did wrong on my first feature that I want to do better on the second feature, you know, but like, like I, and I feel like I did have some, some issues on the first feature of like not necessarily feeling always that confident or like being very, very stressed out and like worrying that I was going to ruin everything or that I was ruining everything at all the the time, you know? And so I feel like, I think I got that on my system, you know? So I think the next movie I go into, I think I'll, I'll have a lot more confidence. Like I'll, like I won't beat myself up over like, you know, going over or cutting scenes or whatever the bullshit I was like. So like, I was like, I've basically thought I was a failure because like I couldn't make my days on any day, you know, but like, I think letting all that stuff go and like realizing that like, this is part of what filmmaking is and that like, you know, if you know that that's going to happen because you know the kind of team that that you work with and the kind of the goals you have, you know, for your the execution of your scenes, well, then just know that you can have less scenes in your movie and that you're probably not going to need that many scenes in your movie anyways because you always cut out so much of your fucking movie when you edit them. So, like, just write less scenes and and give give your team more time to do these scenes the way that you you need to do them because this is the way that you like to work as a filmmaker. Or no, I want to hear your response because I don't think you really gave uh, your response to this question. What I want to do is remove the pressure and have more time, right? Mm-hmm. I had a what, 16-day feature as my first feature with 30 locations and then a 10-day <laughs> feature with one location. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Actually, the 10-day feature oh, is like five God. locations. But what, what I'm did you saying say 30 is, locations in 16 days? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. So, oh, I, just what I'm just me, saying is like... my stomach hurt right now. <laughs> I go through these, like, I put myself in these gauntlets, which is insane. And like, wouldn't it be nice to just slow down? And that's what I'm yeah. hoping to do. But what do you think you're trying to do? Um. Yeah. Jesus. I don't know. I feel like, you know, for me, it's about getting something out that's inside, you know, like, like an, an idea or a concept or a feeling that like you, like I carry around with me that I need to express through a movie, you know, mm-hmm. and like filmmaking is the, the, the best expression I found for my ideas and for my, for my art, you know, that it, like I can't draw like writing by itself. I, it's not enough, you know, it's like yeah. t- to see it, you know, in motion is really what I think is important for me. And I guess to, to like what I'm actually trying to do. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like, I feel like making stories that connect with people and that like, you know, will e- either open their minds to something different or just entertain the shit out of them for an hour and a half, you know, like, and then hopefully if we could do both, that would be great. Like if you can open up your mind, express, express some new ideas and like make you see the world in maybe a different way than you, than you did before and entertain the shit out of you for th- an hour and a half. Like, I think that would be like the ultimate goal. Yeah. 
you know, and then like these things like inclusion and like, you know, representing different voices on screen and, and stuff like that's all part of it and things that are very important to me. But I think in the end, bottom line, it's like that is really the goal is just like, you know, opening people's minds to something different, whatever that is, and entertaining the shit out of them. Like, that's what I want to do. Well, I get that. I mean, at the base level, if you remove all of my talking and my dancing with words. I just want to make people laugh and cry, right? Yeah. There's so much power. I didn't know that I would find such joy in finding out someone cried after watching one of my movies. Like, that is Mm. really weird and sadistic that I enjoy it, but I enjoy (laughs) that so much. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I don't know if I've ever made anyone cry from a movie, but like, like at the, the screening last weekend, I mean, they were laughing, like fucking dying, you know, from the ending of the movie and a couple other parts in the movie. And like, you know, when, when everything kind of came together in the end of the movie and like these things I did with like the ketchup and the little girl and like intercutting that with this extremely violent scene that happens, like, and like people just fucking loving it. And like, just like the whole theater exploding with everything it's just like it's amazing i mean it's kind of an amazing thing i don't know what else is better than that it's like it's pretty crazy you know so i, I it's funny it's like you think about all the like when people ask me how the movie's going i'm like oh i don't know i mean it, it, did, it did a really great it's like we reached all these people you know we're in this film festivals won these awards but we don't know if we're gonna you know make our money back yet or not like we don't really know you know how many people are gonna see it or whatever it's like I think what I've been realizing over this last weekend is that, no, like, I already did it. Like, I already achieved the goal that I set out for myself. I made a movie that people like and care about and that they enjoy. Like, I feel like you've done that, you know, for like, even if it's just 10 people, it's like, that's enough. And like, seemingly for me, it's more than 10. So that's, that's very good. (laughs) I feel like I've done a very good job. So I feel like I just need to let go of like, whatever. And it's like, you know, I can't control now, like how much money it's going to make. It's, you know, I can do my best. I can promote it. The die is cast. You know, I can do all the things, but like, it's sort of out of my hands, you know? So like, I just need to, you know, be there for the movie be happy for it. And then just like, see what happens. But yeah, I don't know. It's, It's crazy being a filmmaker, but it's also one of the best things in the world. You know, it's hard. It's crazy. It's emotional but it's also a lot of fun too. Well, if you want us to wax philosophic on any topic of your choice, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We love to read those out loud. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out our promotional partner, the International Screenwriters Association. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. Head on over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Jane Schoenbrunn for coming on the show, to Rob Shear and Brett Myers from Brigade for setting this up. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymoot, who is a hero and we would be lost without him for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, who is an equally fabulous hero and we would be equally lost without him. Thanks for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. Also thing that you shouldn't do is you don't need to uh, the also thing that you need to do is to check out Jambox IO Jambox